You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. In 1 Timothy, this will be 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 2 and then pray before we dive in. So follow along with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, I ask that you would come now this morning trusting, trust that you're already here. Your word says that where two or more gathered together, there you are in our midst. So, Father, trusting that you're here, we just ask that you would come now in, 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 a, in, in a special way. Uh, that you would speak through the preaching of your word. Father, that you would come and um, do transformative work in our hearts, our souls, and our minds. Uh, Father, I know that each one of us uh, comes here today um, from just different of various things going on in life. And I, I don't know where every person's heart is today, but you do. So, Father, I'm just asking you to come and do what, what all of us in this room are unable to do, and that is to take a look inside of our hearts through the preaching of your word, and that you would challenge us where necessary, or that you would wake up those who are in a spiritual slumber, Father, that you would call to repentance those who are living in spiritual rebellion. Father, that you would bring healing and wholeness to the broken and the weak. And that you would bring strength to those who are weary. Father, I pray that you would do that. I trust you to do that. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Alright, so, four things. Uh, four things that I want to do today. I have an aim. I want to set up the uh, the target for us, so to speak, or the bullseye. Uh, four aims. They should be up on the screen for you. Um, my aim today uh, is, number one, to identify the purpose of this letter as we get into it. And then number two, I want to explain the significance of Paul's opening words in the first two verses. Uh, and then number three, I want to make some practical application to our lives. And then and number four, I want to encourage us by connecting, hopefully connecting everything I've said to the promises of the gospel because the gospel is a point of the scriptures, right? Jesus is the point of the gospel. <laughs> and I want to start off with, the, with this statement. Uh, it's just a phrase that has stuck with me, has continued to bubble up for me over the last few weeks of, of study here. Uh, here's the thing. I believe that the health and the vitality of the local church rises and falls on her understanding of the gospel. Let me say it again. I believe that the health and the vitality of the local church rises and falls on her understanding of the gospel. I believe the thing that will help you to behave in an orderly and godly manner is the promise of the gospel. I believe that the only thing that will help you to face the, 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 the monotony of the mundane, that's a phrase, the monotony, say that ten times fast, right? I think the only thing that's going to help you to face the monotony of the mundane, day in and day out, is the promise of the gospel. There is no other thing that will hold you steady in the face of the daily routine. 
I believe that the only thing that will give you a security that is eternal, not momentary, is the promise of the gospel. The health, the vitality of the local church, I believe, rises and falls on our understanding of the gospel. So here's a question. If someone asked you to describe the local church, what would you say? This question should be on the screen for you too. How would you describe the local church if someone asked you to describe it? If, uh, if a friend came to you or a coworker came to you or, uh, or, or a relative, and they just asked you, man, how would you describe the local church? How would you describe it? Would you describe it with words of brick and mortar? How would you describe it? Because one of the things that we, um, it's a common phrase in America, we're going to church today. And I, I, loved, I love to make snarky comments, so I always ask, how do you go to a place that doesn't exist? Because it's not a place, it's a people that's gathered in a place. Like the place isn't the church. The people are the church, right? It's just interesting, like language does a lot of things. Have any of you ever been, school, we got school teachers in the room, people that homeschool their kids, you know, like language, language means something. And language, I think, actually forms and shapes our hearts, right? So how would you describe the local church? I want you to listen to these descriptions. Listen to this description. Uh, yeah, listen to this description. A church is the household of God. Love it. The church is the household of God. Interesting uh, description. Or how about this one? Uh, the church is the assembly of the people of God in the presence of the living God. The church is the assembly of the people of God in the presence of the living God. Or how about this one? The church is the pillar and beacon, you could say battering ram of the truth of the gospel. Just different descriptions of the church. If, actually, if you were to turn, <coughs> which you don't have to, um, but you can just note, if you were to turn to 1 Timothy 3, 15, 14 and 15, these are the descriptions that you would find from the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter. This is his description of the local church. If you were to ask Paul to describe it, this is what he would say. And it's a weighty description of Jesus' bride, right? Very weighty. Paul is writing this letter, uh, 1 Timothy. He's writing to the lead elder and the lead pastor of the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the beacon and the battering ram of the truth of the gospel in the city of Ephesus. Interestingly, uh, we as a church family have just completed a, a years, year-long, not years-long, it could have been, <laughs> a year-long, roughly, study in the book of Ephesians. And I, I, I believe it was, it was, for me, it was fruitful. It was fruitful for us as a church family, too. So interestingly, we, we, we've studied the book of Ephesians already, and then as we dive into 1 Timothy, we charge from Paul to Timothy. You can that this charge uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, this is probably the key verse or the purpose of this letter. You could say that that would be like the core verse in it, and everything that Paul, everything that Paul says flows out of that. This is his intent. It's charged there in uh, chapter 3, 14 through 15, on top of the description of the local church. Uh, to Timothy is, is he wants Timothy to help the Ephesian church to know how to behave in an orderly and godly manner and don't give up. That's what's going to permeate the entire letter as we study it. It's this background of the, 
that, that Paul and that God wants us to behave and to live in an orderly and godly manner and don't give up doing so. What Paul is saying to Timothy is don't give up on them, Timothy. Help them to behave in an organized and godly manner. Now this, this would have been a really hard call to Timothy, I think. This wouldn't have been easy. It would have been difficult. Now, I, I imagine, if I imagine Timothy, and, and maybe you can do this with me too, uh, put on your imagination caps or whatever we might call those, and just imagine, put yourself in Timothy's shoes. Like, Timothy would have experienced days uh, where he would have questioned maybe if he would have made a better carpenter, or a better farmer, a better fisherman, a better truck driver. There were trucks there. I just imagine that, those, that there were days where he would have questioned his calling. Could I be doing something different? The city of Ephesus is where God had called Timothy to minister. And, and there in Ephesus, Timothy would continue day in, day out, day in, and day out. Anybody else know what this feels like? Same routine, every day, day in, day out. Same thing, over and over. And then question, like, should I really be here? Should I really be doing this? Is this what God has really called me to? And a little side note and a bunny trail for you. If God hasn't called you to what you're doing, you won't last. You won't last. And calling is an interesting thing. Like to identify, man, am I called to work this job? Am I called to marry this man? Am I called to marry this woman? Am I called to, to, to make this purchase? Like, asking that question is a really hard question. Oftentimes we don't like hard things, so we just kind of flip on by it, right? But it's important for us to ask, what am I called to this? Timothy knew where he was called to. It would have been a tough place. Tough place. You think about Ephesus. The culture in Ephesus was saturated with sexual sin, slavery, witchcraft. Dealing with the same things there that we deal with here. Just in different ways. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to human sin and depravity. Every time you or I think we've got the corner on the market or we got it worse now than they did then, like we're full of pride. That's no different. All right, the religious culture in Ephesus um, have most likely been pagan at best. The people there uh, in Ephesus would have been very confused, probably very wary, very tired. Uh, the culture would have um, would have had different levels of chaos in it, um, especially with its many choices uh, uh, like pleasure-filled pastimes. We still have those today. Oh yeah, lots of temptation, right? Can just it can create chaos. Uh, Ephesus simply would have been a very difficult place to work. The job. The job for Timothy would have been loaded with all sorts of difficult and mundane tasks. Um, and again, I think we all know what this feels like. I, I think that we all struggle in the monotony of the mundane, don't we? But we wonder if we're doing anything of any significance. Ever wonder that? Man, is what I'm doing even is it? Is it even? Is it even? Uh, does it even have a purpose to what's happening? Like on the surface, our lives can sometimes, I think. Uh, feel like or even appear that our, our day-to-day lives hold little to no significance, right? Ever feel that way? Like you work at a gas station or you work at a, a factory or, or you work at a convenience store or you, 
you, you labor really hard trying to get your small business afloat, or, or you, you labor at home, slaving away behind the scenes with your kids. That was just days, probably more days than not, I think, oftentimes, where we begin to wonder, like, is this, is this really worth it? Really what I'm called to. Is there anything significant to this? Truth be told, I think there's more hard days than there are easy days for us. More days for mundane tasks than there are days that are full of mountaintop experiences, right? More days where you question the significance of your calling than actually resting securely in the arms of him who called you. Think about that. More days spent questioning the significance of our lives rather than resting in the arms, the peaceful arms of him who called you to this. Where are you wrestling with the monotony of the mundane right now? Where are you walking in the valley rather than soaring high above the mountain? Where do you find yourself just like going through the motions, just hoping and just praying that things will get better, things will change tomorrow? you experiencing that? Or do you feel weighed down with the worry and, and the suffering of this life, the unknown? Where do you feel bored or complacent or even lazy with the daily routine? I think Timothy, I think Timothy understood this phrase that uh, keeps popping up, the monotony of the mundane. I think he understood it. Well, Timothy, Timothy didn't have a story like Paul's story. Anybody here identify with that? I don't have a story like Joe's story. I've heard it. I know my story is full of really deep, dark, what appears to be explosive mess. I've heard others say, I don't have a story like your story. Story though. And Timothy had a story, but it wasn't like the Apostle Paul's. It wasn't full of fireworks. Timothy didn't meet Jesus on a road to some place where he was looking to kill Christians in a really bad way, and Jesus like knocks him off his horse or his motorcycle in the middle of the street. Timothy didn't have that story. Paul had that story. Timothy had that story. And oftentimes, catch this, we oftentimes want to compare ourselves with other people, and when doing so, we minimize the power and the glory of God in our lives. But don't do that. Like, I bet you're alive in a box, right? Okay, no, I'm kidding. Somebody's got to remember that video. No. Bury you alive in a box? Okay, we got it. I know, maybe it's, there's a video, y'all probably ought to go watch it. It's kind of hilarious. Stop it, yeah, just stop it. So when I say stop it, I say stop it for the glory of God and by the power of God, right? Um, Timothy didn't have a story like Paul's. Uh, Timothy was born to a mom and dad whose marriage wasn't recognized, most likely as a legitimate marriage. His Dad was probably a Greek, his mom was most likely Jewish, wouldn't have been recognized most likely by the religious establishment. Nah, not a legitimate marriage. Imagine growing up with that. Not a lot of fireworks, but there'd be a lot of pain there. Timothy was a very, very fearful young man. On top of that, he was very young. An old joke for pastors that for a long time, you'll just be too young, and then at some point, you'll be too old. So you just got to deal with it, you know? Oh, yeah. Young. On top of that, he suffered from chronic stomach pain. Um, and add to that, this is interesting, like, chronic stomach pain, 
and he works a job with tons of interpersonal conflict. Man, was it like God's providence to keep a man humble or what, you know? I mean, poor Timothy. Not a lot of fireworks, though. Nevertheless, Paul took Timothy under his wing. He trained him. He loved him. He encouraged him. He challenged him. And then what does he do? Leaves him in charge of a church that he had planted in Ephesus. And then now many years later, after his letter to the Ephesian church, he now writes again. So in this time when he's writing, he's writing to address both members and leaders alike, right? And he's got a clearly communicated purpose, like I said earlier, um, for writing this letter in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, I think. And I think that the challenge there to both the church and her pastor is to not give up on learning how to behave and live in an orderly and godly manner. Let me just ask you, is there anybody in here that needs a little bit more order in their lives? Anybody here experience any chaos this morning when trying to get your kids ready for church? Right? Or maybe chaos personally. For me personally, I, mean, I have an alarm on my phone that usually goes off. It was like the third time in the last three months that it didn't go off because I turned it off yesterday, hoping to sleep in a little bit, and then didn't turn the alarm back on. So I I jump out of bed at like 6.36 and I'm like, crap! I'm running in the bathroom to get in the shower. got the shower running, got the other door closed, come running back into the bedroom from the, from the bathroom and stub my big toe on the door. We were talking about a chaotic morning, right? That's the way it started. I was supposed to have been here at 6.30. So We all experience chaos in our lives. This would have been... I think the clear goal of what Paul is writing, to help the church and her pastors to give up on learning how to behave and live in an orderly and godly manner. What Paul is saying to Timothy is this, keep doing what you're doing, Timothy. Keep growing, Timothy. Don't stop that. Keep eating the elephant one little bite at a time. Keep preaching the same message. Keep getting out of the same bed in the morning. Keep going through the routine. Keep learning how to behave and to live in, a, in an orderly and godly manner. Don't give up. Don't let the barriers to you pressing into the monotony of the mundane stop you for the glory of God. I want you to think about barriers for a minute. Well, what, what are some of the barriers in your life to living in an orderly and godly manner? What are some of the barriers for you? There's a question that I kind of wrestled through this week, and as I thought about it, I thought about three things that I think are common to all of us. You have the barrier of individual isolation, you have the barrier of broken families, and you have the barrier of worldwide chaos. I think this would have been present in Ephesus, it's still present today. I don't think any of us are immune to any of that. <laughs> are immune to isolation. Now, isolation isn't just a symptom of singleness, right? And people who have large families who are super connected in church communities, people who have lots of friends, still struggle with isolation. There are more broken families in this world than there are whole families, every study that I can find. The world we live in, I think, uh, kind of continues to spin in chaos. Watch the evening news one time this week, and that's all you need. Five minutes. Just watch the chaotic blurping on the screen. Turn on Fox News, or you turn on CNN, whichever one is your 
drug of choice when it comes to news. Just watch the constant blipping. Alarm, alert, terrorism, get out. Like, just, it's chaos. Sin and rebellion has infected the healthiest of us. Darkness intrudes into the most lighthearted of us at the most inopportune times. Two songs we sang this morning about how the darkness will not prevail. His mercy. And into this mess of sin, darkness, rebellion, we see in our world that we live in the midst of. Into the mess of that stands the pastor and the church, the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the battering ram, the truth of the gospel. And Paul's opening words to Timothy and the church in the first two verses what it does is it helps to set the tone for how to be a church that behaves in an orderly and godly manner in the face of opposition. So make no mistake as you're thinking about all these things. What Paul is not going to do is he's not going to make a case for the kind of self-defeatism or blame gaming or victimization or entitlement that we so often see and get tempted towards in our culture. He's not going to do that. Paul is actually going to continue to make an argument all throughout his letter to Timothy and the church that the church is called to be radically countercultural in the midst of the monotony of the mundane and the culture that we live in. Radically countercultural. What does that mean? What does that mean? Think about what the calling of the church is. Think about the radical countercultural aspect of who we are to be. Paul says, verse 1, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, I know who I am. I know by whose command I am speaking to you. And my hope is rooted in someone who is eternally secure and trustworthy. See, Paul knew that he wasn't writing under his own authority. Uh, He knew who and whose he was. He, He knew that his words weren't rooted in some pop culture idea of right and wrong. He knew that his future wasn't dictated by the momentary brokenness of this sin-infected life. He knew that. His hope was somewhere else. His hope was otherworldly. I think it's from that deep sense of identity, that, that deep sense of trust and hope that then enabled Apostle Paul to say, Hey, hey, Timothy, you are my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, peace from God the Father, Christ Jesus our Lord to you. And what he says is, what he's essentially saying is, hey, hey Timothy, you, you, you have an eternal place in this family. I'm asking our Father who is faithful to, to fill you with his grace, his mercy, and his Paul knew that the only thing that would help Timothy stay the course, not tap out, not give up, not run off, he knew the only thing that was going to help Timothy gospel. 
The only thing that will help keep us grounded in the face of individual isolation, the only thing that's going to keep us grounded in the face of broken family systems, the only thing that's going to keep us grounded in the midst of the chaos of sin in our world is the truth of God's grace, mercy, and peace towards us on the cross of Christ. Got to cling to that. Think about how the cross of Christ connects to what Paul is saying here for a moment. Make that connection. Promise of eternal belonging from an eternally faithful Father. That's the only thing that will help us to behave in an orderly and godly fashion until Christ returns. See, at the cross of Christ is where all of this actually comes together and meets, right? At the cross, Jesus endures the monotony of the mundane. And and at the cross, Jesus authoritatively says a couple of things. Number one, it is finished. Number two, Father, forgive them they don't know what they're doing. It is finished. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. When, when you struggle with your own sin, let me ask you a question and see if you'd be honest with yourself. Do you usually sin knowingly? I think at times, right? Isn't it, isn't it pure deception? Uh, isn't that what's behind your sin? You think somehow that what you're about to do is going to be better. You've trusted in the promise of sin rather than trusting the promise of the gospel. So Jesus, while hanging on the cross, experiencing the worst horror ever done against humanity, because listen, every sin that you and I commit against each other falls short of the sin that you and I commit against God. Why? Because he's perfect. So when, when our perfect Savior Jesus is hanging on that cross and he's being nailed to that cross, by, by humanity, I say, Father, forgive them their deceit. That, that kind of forgiveness that's been extended to you and I as sinners, that radically reshapes heart. The place that I think all of us probably need to spend some time in. And what's finished there? Well, what's finished is your salvation was purchased there. That's what was finished. The payment for your sin was finished there, was completed. There's no more payment to be made. It's not like there was a payment plan. Jesus didn't put that on credit. Jesus paid it once and for all. Done. It's not like every time you and I sin, you got to go back and pray some crazy little prayer like, please save me again, right? And Jesus is like, okay, I'll go back to the cross again for you. Like, that's not going to happen. It was paid for. It was complete. It was finished. The work that he came to do was complete. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. At the cross, God the Father, through the sacrifice of Jesus, adopts you eternally, no longer alone in your humanity. Grace, mercy, and peace. These are your new motivations. Where, where you and I were once motivated by fear, motivated by pain, motivated by the desire to accomplish more, motivated by the desires to be more famous, motivated by the desires to look more cool, to look more smart, uh, whatever those motivations can be, 
Now, now your new motivation in Christ because of the cross of Christ is grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. That's your new motivation. These are the conduits by which the gospel comes to you and you're reshaped and reformed and transformed. In Christ, God has been gracious to you. He's given you what you could never earn, what you could never deserve. Christ, God has been merciful towards you. What He's done in His mercy is He has withheld the eternal consequences of your sin. He's redirected His wrath that once was against you because of your sin. He's redirected that onto someone who is perfect and His name is Jesus. At the cross, He redirected His wrath to Him. You don't have to bear that. He withheld it from you. Christ, God has extended true peace towards you. And I think this is a peace. This is a peace I think we all need to hear this morning as well. I heard the themes of it all throughout this morning. God has extended true peace to you. And listen, true peace isn't about the absence of conflict. True peace is actually about the ability to stand securely in the presence of great conflict because you know who and whose you are. Because of the cross of Christ, you, you can now endure the monotony of the mundane. Because of the cross of Christ, you can embrace your new identity as a sinner who has been saved by grace. Really, this grace, mercy, and peace section the way that Paul writes it, the structure of his writing in the Greek is, is, like, a, is like a compiled. It's piled upon. It's, it's grace upon grace upon grace. It's mercy upon mercy upon mercy. It's peace upon peace upon peace. This is, this is the, the, kind of the heart and the sense of what Paul is saying to Timothy. And hey, in the midst of the monotony of the mundane, in the midst of looking at every day that you get to walk through, it's just going to be no different than it was yesterday. And in fact, you might be afraid of what tomorrow may bring. But here's the thing, Timothy, I'm, I'm praying that you would have grace upon grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy upon mercy and peace upon peace upon peace. I want this to overflow into your life because it's from that place that you'll actually be able to live an orderly and godly life. It's the cross of Christ, you, you can embrace your new identity as a sinner saved by grace because the cross of Christ, you Stay in the fight when all you want to do is just give up and run away. Because the cross of Christ, you, you can behave in an orderly, godly fashion when all you want to do is live in fear or entitlement. Three things that I said at the beginning, the last three things that I want to leave you with as I close, are the only thing that will help you to behave in an orderly and godly manner is the promise of the gospel. All other promises, Fall terribly short. If you're banking on a promise of, of vengeance towards someone who has hurt you, that promise is going to leave you empty. If you're banking on the promise that that person sitting next to you is going to fulfill you for the rest of your life, that promise is going to bankrupt you. Only promise. That will fulfill you and keep you. The promise of the gospel. The only thing that will help you is the monotony of the mundane is the promise of the gospel. And number three, 
The only thing that will give you eternal security is the promise of the gospel. So I don't know what your experience with the church is like. I don't know how you would describe the church. Like I asked in the beginning. I don't know where you're struggling in the monotony of the mundane right now. I don't know what barriers you walked in with today. I don't know what your struggle with isolation or brokenness or chaos looks like. I don't know if you're more prone to self-defeatism. I'm just going to give up and forget this. I don't know if, it, if you struggle more with blame game. Like, hey, it's not really my fault if he or she wouldn't have done X, Y, Z. I don't, I don't know if you're living in the, the victimization area where it's like, hey, man, nothing sticks to me because I've just been hurt so much my entire life that I can't be held accountable for anything I've done wrong. I don't know if that's you. Or maybe entitlement. Hey, I deserve this, but I only got that. Like, I never deserved to be treated that way. I deserve to be treated this way instead. I deserve to have everything I ever wanted without actually working for it. Whatever it is, when it comes to entitlement, maybe you struggle with that. I don't know if that's you. I would be willing to guess that all of us fall into some of these categories. I don't know what your devotion to the Lord looks like or looked like when you walked in this morning. I don't know what goes on in, in your relationships behind the closed doors of your home. I don't know what your interactions with your coworkers looks like. I don't know what kind of mess your private thought life has been like this last week, this morning for that matter. I do know this. The tomb is empty. Okay. The tomb is empty. The grave has no body in it. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. He has been victorious over Satan, sin, and the grave. And that victory is our inheritance. That's what you and I look forward to. That's the hope that you and I have in the midst of a world that throws competing hopes at us day in and day out. We look forward to the hope of heaven. We stand firm here on earth until Christ returns. And we stand firm as a pillar and beacon of the truth of the gospel in our community. So please be encouraged, my friends. You walked in here today and your heart was a wreck. Your life was out of control. You were just going through the motions. You were just hiding out in your man-made cave. Of Jesus went to the cross for you. And he left the tomb empty on the third day. Because of that central truth. Because of the gospel which is central to life. Paul could say to Timothy. And I can also say to us. Grace, mercy, peace. Don't give up. Keep trusting in Christ. He, he will complete what He began in you. Some of you, this morning, He'll begin that work now. You in this room that have grown up in the church your whole life, over and over and over again, He might begin that work in you this morning. Some of you who have never been in a church this morning, he might begin that work in you as well. And for all of us who have trusted in Christ, what we have to look forward to is a day where there is no more tears, no more sin, and no more pain. You're not alone. You're in the presence of family members who know what it's like to be broken, helpless, while clinging to the hope of the gospel. This is the good news to us today in the midst of the monotony of the Agreed? Pray. Father, I pray that you would 
come in our closing moments and help to apply this message to our hearts as we are reminded yet again of your shed blood and your broken body at the cross. To come and reshape, renew, and transform our hearts in these moments. Trust you. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.